Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. The prophet Habakkuk, just a few books from the end of the Old Testament. Habakkuk, chapter 3. We've been in a short series of sermons in Habakkuk. Uh, We had two messages on Habakkuk, chapter 1, chapter 2, and then this is the third of, God willing, what will be four messages on the entire book. So we're in Habakkuk 3 this morning, and I'd like us to consider together uh, verses 1 through 15. So if you would please follow along as I read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Habakkuk has twice uh, brought his laments, his complaints before the Lord. The Lord has twice answered him, and now we have this prayer in Habakkuk 3, which form something of a resolution for the book. So please follow along as I read Habakkuk's prayer in Habakkuk 3, 1 through 15. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let me ask that we briefly pray together before considering God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it is living and active. We thank You that You still speak to Your people today, and You do so through the Bible. We pray this morning that as we consider these uh, words from this prayer uttered uh, over 2,000 years ago, we pray, Father, that we would see something of your glory, something of your character and your nature, we'd understand something more of your providence, and that we'd appreciate something more of what our posture as the people of God ought to be as we seek to follow, worship, and serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. If I could begin briefly by uh, reviewing uh, these verses, sort of summarizing uh, the context in which these verses appear. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is a prayer from Habakkuk that is, in many ways, the culmination of the book. Uh, Habakkuk, uh, at the beginning of chapter 1, issued his first uh, complaint, we could call it, his lament, uh, asking God why he seems to tolerate sin and injustice in Judah, the southern kingdom uh, of Israel, and why the Lord seems to be tolerating their wickedness, and he calls upon the Lord to address the situation. The Lord responds in the latter part of chapter 1, and in that portion of chapter 1, the Lord essentially tells Habakkuk that he's going to come and judge uh, Judah by way of raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, and that he's going to use this very wicked nation to judge Judah's 
wickedness. And then in the very end of chapter 1 into the first verse of chapter 2, Habakkuk issues his second complaint in which he asks God uh, why in his holiness and in his righteousness and justice, he would use a sinful nation like Babylon, raising them up to execute judgment upon Judah. Because after all, isn't Babylon more wicked than Judah? And God responds again, and he, uh, from chapter 2, verse 2 through 2, verse 20, announces that, yes, he will be using this wicked nation, but their wickedness has not gone unnoticed God will right every wrong, God's righteousness and justice will still prevail, and the day is coming, it will not delay, the day is coming in which God will judge Babylon and ultimately address their wickedness as well. And that's when we get to chapter 3 with Habakkuk's prayer, which is sort of the culmination of the book. It is a summary of Habakkuk's response to what he's learned about God and about sin and about righteousness and about God's providence. The prayer comes to us essentially in two parts. Uh, I've read to you the first part, verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3, uh, in which uh, Habakkuk is, is speaking largely of God and his nature and his ways. And then verses 16 through 19, which Lord willing will consider next time, is sort of Habakkuk's response to all of this, his sort of resolution after all he has seen and heard and learned about God. And so what we have in, in, in this prayer, at least the first part, verses 1 through 15, uh, is a vision of God as a, a sort of warrior judging the wicked and delivering his people. And, and here's how I think the passage works. It's actually a fairly complex passage. There's some ambiguities in the Hebrew language. Uh, commentators differ over the meaning of certain phrases. But here's what I think is the, the big thing Habakkuk is doing in this prayer. Habakkuk is essentially looking backwards in the past upon the ways in which God has dealt with his people and the ways in which God has judged sinful nations in his wrath and in his justice. He's looking back on that, recalling the ways in which the Lord has judged the wicked and vindicated his people. And he is looking back on that in the past as sort of a paradigm for how God will act in the future. He's looking back on the ways in which God has delivered Israel as, a, as a, a paradigm, a sort of foretelling of the way God will indeed deliver Israel in the future. Habakkuk, of course, is still processing the sobering reality that God will also judge Israel, but he recognizes that that judgment, that, that it is the, Babylons, the Babylonians uh, being over the kingdom of Judah, that's going to be temporary, and it's going to be for reproof. It won't finally be for the utter destruction of God's people. God has not abandoned his people. He's not abandoned Habakkuk. Though Habakkuk is deeply saddened and, and greatly disheartened by the coming judgment of Judah, particularly by the means by which that judgment will come, Habakkuk is looking ahead now in this prayer uh, to a day when God will work deliverance for his people by means of the judgment of Babylon. Before we open up these verses and I give you the main headings for the passage, I just want to suggest to you, we could have this in our minds as we go through these verses, uh, this, this vision of God that we get in Habakkuk 3, I don't think is one that most uh, self-professed worshipers of God have in their minds when they approach God in worship. But I want to encourage you as we go through Habakkuk 3, remember God has not changed. He is immutable. He is unchanging. This is not something like a picture of the Old Testament God who is altogether different from the warm and fuzzy New Testament God or something like that. In fact, we won't have time to do this, but many of the phrases that are used in Habakkuk 3 to describe this warrior God who threshes the nations and comes in justice and righteousness and wrath, many of those same phrases uh, or similar phrases are used in Revelation to describe the coming of the Lord Jesus. The God of Habakkuk 3 is strikingly similar to the Christ of Revelation. So as we read about Habakkuk's God in Habakkuk 3, we should recognize this is a vision of our God. And this vision, as it moves Habakkuk to worship, should move us to worship and to a greater sense of God's justice and His power and His 
might. So as we work through the passage now, it's not my goal to examine every detail in the passage, uh, not, not my purpose to, to look over every word and explain every sort of picture that Habakkuk introduces. I want to stick with the major impressions the passage gives us, because after all, coming away from this message, it'll probably be the major impressions that you remember more than anything else. What are we to be impressed with about God and about ourselves from this passage? I want to stick with major impressions, and I think there are four that I'd like to share with us this morning. Four things we should be impressed with, four major impressions that we're given from Habakkuk 3. First of all, we should be impressed with God's greatness, the grounds for worship. God's greatness, the grounds for worship. That's my first heading. God's greatness, the grounds for worship. Habakkuk presents to us a striking picture of God. A God who commands the whole earth. God who appears as a warrior on behalf of his people to deliver them. A God who holds the nations in derision and who will finally judge them and address every wrongdoing. And Habakkuk tells us essentially that this God, the God who appears as a warrior on behalf of his people and who judges the nations in his wrath, this God is worthy of praise. He himself begins uh, the chapter with these words. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigianoth. He says this is a, a prayer. The, the, the form of the passage itself is an act of worship. And then that little phrase that we could probably just as easily pass over, but I, I think there's something we should see here, according to Shigianoth, many scholars and commentators believe that would be like a musical directive, maybe a certain tune or a certain musical form or something like that. Uh, so that is what has led, I think, a number of translations, maybe the translation you're using, uh, to refer to this passage as Habakkuk's prayer, or excuse me, Habakkuk's hymn rather than his prayer. Whether it's a prayer or a hymn, I just want to point out the very form the passage takes indicates that this is an act of worship on Habakkuk's part. He's praying to God. It's a hymn to God. It's an anthem to God. And, 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 and what Habakkuk wants to lay before us is both what God has revealed about himself, that is his nature, and what he's revealing about his providence, the, the way in which uh, he works, what it is he's doing. And it's these things, both God's nature and God's providence, that move Habakkuk to worship. So he says, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. This is not just Habakkuk being afraid of the coming Babylonians or something like that. This is that worshipful, reverential fear that is consistent with biblical worship. Habakkuk has heard about who God is and what he's doing. He, is, he has been admitted into the presence of God and, and been permitted to dialogue with God. And God has responded to him and what he's learned about God moves him to worshipful fear, reverential fear, a sort of stunned awe in the presence of God, appreciating who he is. And notice he's worshiping God in part because of his mysterious providence. He says, your work, O Lord, do I fear. As I see the things you're doing in the world and the ways in which you work that, that just confound me, your ways that are past finding out, that moves me to worship you. Then he says, verse 3, God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. I don't assume you know uh, uh, what those names, Taman and Mount Paran, are referring to. Those are roughly the boundary markers of the path the Israelites would have taken through the wilderness, Taman and Mount Paran. So he says, God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. So, so, so. Habakkuk's recounting the Israelite experience in the wilderness with God. And it's interesting the language he uses. He says, God came from Taman. Even as the Israelites came from Taman. Habakkuk is artfully capturing that God was with his people. God dwelled with his people from Taman. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount 
Paran. The glory of God was with his people and they worshipped him in the wilderness and reverenced him as God. And the splendor of this God, who is located in some sense with his people, nonetheless covers the heavens, Habakkuk says. The splendor of the Lord covered the heavens. The whole earth is filled with his praise. This is how Habakkuk opens the prayer. It's clearly an act of worship. And the God of Habakkuk Uh, is described in the subsequent verses. And it's the God of Habakkuk that's described in the coming verses is that God that he worships. And it's that God that we worship. And, And as Habakkuk talks about the wrath of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God and the raw power of God appearing as a warrior to judge the nations, appreciate he's not listing a bunch of inconvenient truths that he just needs to tuck away as quickly as possible. I think Habakkuk is saying these things about God form part the grounds of our worship. These things about who God is in themselves are part of why we worship God. It is the greatness of God, the God who is The God who acts on behalf of his people. The God who subdues the nations and reigns over all. The God who judges all the earth. The God who executes his wrath and accomplishes deliverance for his people. This God is the one Habakkuk worships. Now appreciate what we've seen in Habakkuk so far. Why is it that he's worshiping God? What are the major themes that have been brought to Habakkuk's Attention, what is it that forms the grounds of his praise? What thoughts of God are regulating his worship? Well, it is the righteousness of God, surely. The the judgment of God, both on Israel for reproof and on Babylon for their destruction. He's meditated and seen the power of God, the wrath of God. He's reflected on the mysterious providence of God, by which the whole earth, even God's people, are confounded. It's these themes that move Habakkuk to praise and worship. Well, friends, I'll just ask you, has God changed? Is the God of Habakkuk our God? And and I ask you, as as you worship God and as, as we worship God, in this room, ordinarily, Sunday by Sunday, do these thoughts about God, His power, His wrath, His justice, His judgment by which He will be seen to be right, God true and every man a liar, His mysterious providence that at times confounds us, do these themes find expression in our worship? Do these thoughts about God animate your worship of God? They ought to. These thoughts about God ought to find expression in our worship. My friend, your worship of God will never rise higher than your thoughts about God. How big and how great and how awesome is the God you worship? Do your thoughts about God, does your worship of God, is it ever called forth by contemplation about God's just judgment? Does his mysterious providence, the sort of, his ways and the things he's doing in the world that seem so far out of our reach and so beyond us to comprehend, does that move you to worship? Well, may it be so. It moved Habakkuk to worship. It ought to move us to worship. We ought not to think only about God's goodness and his grace and his redemption and his love. We should think often and always about those things. But we must also make room in our contemplation about God and our worship of God for His justice and His holiness, for His judgments, even for His wrath, His righteous, holy wrath, His power, His mysterious providence. His greatness is the grounds for our worship. Consider with me secondly, in God's greatness, the grounds for worship, we should be impressed also, secondly, with God's wrath the grounds for fear. God's wrath, the grounds for fear. Verse 
2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, we have to appreciate this. There's a distinction to be made. There's two expressions of wrath that are coming that Habakkuk, I think, is alluding to in this passage. There's the wrath of God toward Judah, which is not going to be for their destruction. God has not abandoned his people. But God's wrath, nonetheless, his just judgment is coming toward Judah, which will be for reproof. Remember, Habakkuk makes that statement. We, we will not die, Lord. I believe it's chapter 1, verse 13. This coming judgment is for reproof. It's for correction. So that wrath is coming, and that's why Habakkuk, I think, says in chapter 3, verse 2, Lord, in, in wrath, your righteous wrath that is expressed towards your people, remember mercy. Remember your promise. But then I think Habakkuk goes on to envision the rest of the passage, a, a, another form of wrath that is coming toward Babylon, the Chaldeans. And, and this wrath is going to destroy them and devastate them. This is going to bring about, this is not just for the reproof of Babylon, this is going to destroy Babylon. This is sort of God's final judgment on the land of Babylon, those evildoers who did not honor God. So Habakkuk, yes, acknowledges this temporary judgment, this temporary expression of wrath coming to Judah, but then he reflects on this larger judgment that's coming against Babylon and all of Israel's enemies and all those evildoers who do not acknowledge God. So I'm focusing now on that second expression of wrath, because I understand that to be Habakkuk's burden, the wrath of God towards sinners who do not acknowledge God. Habakkuk shares a picture of God executing his wrath on the nations as a means of delivering Israel, and surely Habakkuk is anticipating that this is how God will act once again. He does not doubt that God will, in fact, judge evildoers. At one point in the book, he questioned, will God actually be vindicated? Will he do what's right? Is God going to judge those who are evil? Will there be some sort of imbalance in the scales? Now he's convinced God will, in fact, address every wrongdoing. He will judge the wicked. And he acknowledges in these verses, God had judged the Egyptians. There are references to the Exodus event. God had judged the Amorites. He will judge the Babylonians. So God is envisioned in the rest of this prayer uh, from, from verse 4 on as this mighty warrior who comes to judge and devastate the whole earth, the nations of the world. Observe the picture in verse 4. We read that lightning is in his hand. Pestilence and plague surround his feet like a cloud of dust. Verse 5, God is walking through the world and there's plague and pestilence surrounding his feet. He, he gives a look and shakes the nations, verse 6. Uh, in verse 7, we see that the mountains and hills around him cower in fear. Cushan and Midian, Israel's ancient foes, tremble at the sight of this warrior God. Verse 8 reads, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? I think the idea is God is, is coming along the rivers, and the rivers as God treads over them are devastated and torn apart. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? We read verse 9 that God unfurls his bow and, and the picture is that he, he sort of puts the arrow to the string of his wrath. And the arrow is poised. Wrath is coming. The mountains writhe and the waters are swept away. Verse 10. Verse 11 makes reference to that Famous event in Joshua 10 when the sun stands still in the sky. Verse 12, you march through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What a picture we get here of God. This mighty warrior who comes out against the nations. Well, I said I don't want to get bogged down in details. I'm not going to open up each phrase. I just want to ask a simple question. 
Who would want to have such a God as their enemy? Would you, my friend, want to have this God as your enemy? To have this great warrior, God. He's got lightning in his hands. He's got the arrow of his wrath up against the string. It's God who marches through the earth. The mountains themselves tremble. The seas part. This picture of God is a God of righteous wrath who is coming to judge the wicked. And do you, my friend, want to be his enemy? One of the repeated themes in Habakkuk that we've seen is that sin will not go unpunished. God's wrath will have the final say over those who obstinately carry on their wickedness as though he does not see. He will have the final say over those who refuse to bow the knee to him. He will judge all those evildoers who will not worship God and follow him. Do you want to be this God's enemy? The wrath of God is grounds for fear. It was then and it is now. Now, my friend, at this point, I just want to encourage you that you don't have to have this God as your enemy. Imagine everything we've seen in this passage about God. This picture of this mighty warrior who comes to execute vengeance and justice and wrath upon the nations. Imagine all these resources for power that God has with which he will judge the nations. And then imagine that those resources are not used now to judge you, but might actually be used in your defense. Imagine the God who is your enemy by some means becoming your friend and your defender and your warrior. That now this God who was your enemy, is now your friend. Wouldn't that be wonderful to have the God of Habakkuk 3 not fighting against me, but fighting for me? Habakkuk seems to have that confidence. That's why he rejoices in this. Because he appears on behalf of his anointed. He appears on behalf of his people. God is going to defend Israel. God is going to act on their behalf. Now why is it? Habakkuk would have been aware that he himself was a sinner. Obviously, the Jewish people were sinful, even those believing Jews who embraced the promises of God. How is it that they can have the confidence that God appears on their behalf to defend them? That God's wrath ultimately will not be against them, but God's power and might will be for them? The simple answer is that Habakkuk and every believing Jew like him looked ahead to God's promised provision for salvation. Habakkuk believed, like every believing Jew before him, in the promises of God by which he could be saved from the wrath of God. He could believe God and have faith credited to him as righteousness so that when he appears before this warrior God of Habakkuk 3, he doesn't appear as an evildoer. He appears as one who has been redeemed and justified and saved. We Christians are in the same situation. We don't believe that we're perfect, uh, that we're somehow holier than thou or something, we are painfully aware of our own sins. And yet we have the confidence that this God in Habakkuk 3 who commands this sort of power, this God is for us. And so we rejoice in Paul's words, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because that God in Habakkuk 3 is my God, and he fights for me. He defends me. He, he acts on my behalf as one of his people. But how is it that I've gone from being in that circle of God's enemies into the circle of those God fights for? It's through faith in Jesus Christ, whereby the Lord Jesus comes and intercepts the righteous wrath of God that was toward me. And by what He has done on the cross, appearing as my substitute, He propitiates God's wrath. He moves me from being in a place of, of being God's enemy and being under His wrath to being in a place of favor with God, which is a place of ultimate safety, a place of ultimate joy, 
to know that I'm not the subject of God's wrath, but to know I'm the subject of His favor. That's held out to everyone. This God who comes to judge the wicked can become your friend. You can be reconciled to this God. You can be redeemed and saved and justified and be actually a friend of this God. But until then, for you, my friend, God's wrath is only the grounds for fear. Well, may it not be so. Number three, the third point, and this is really the major emphasis of the chapter, I think. We've seen God's greatness, the grounds for worship, God's wrath, the grounds for fear. Thirdly, God's past faithfulness, the grounds for present trust. God's past faithfulness, the grounds for present trust. Now, Habakkuk, I think, in this passage, is, is in very poetic language, drawing the minds, his own mind, of course, and the minds of his readers, to the Exodus event. You remember God's people were enslaved in Egypt, and then God, in the most striking and dramatic and powerful of ways, led them out of the land of Egypt. He split the Red Sea, and God's people walked through, and then the seas collapsed upon Pharaoh and his armies. I think Habakkuk is calling that event to mind. He references God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus event and in the wilderness. It would be almost impossible to overstate the significance of the Exodus event in the mind of any believing Jew. They would have reflected not only year by year in the Passover celebration, but, but often about how God had demonstrated His power and His deliverance and His salvation for His people. Their minds often went back to this event. You can see that in the Psalms. You can see that in the prophetic literature, that the Israelites reflected often on how God had delivered them in the Exodus. Well, it's there uh, at the shores of the Red Sea after God has made a way by which His people could pass through, and as He's judged the Egyptians and drowned the armies of Pharaoh, there at the shores of the Red Sea, Moses begins his famous song in Exodus 15 with these words, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider He has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Very similar to what we're reading about God in Habakkuk 3. But Habakkuk doesn't just reference... God's dealings with Israel in Egypt and in the wilderness, he also references in verse 11 of Habakkuk 3, that fateful day in Joshua 10 when the sun stood still. Remember that story as the Israelites were going out against the Amorites. Uh, they need more time in order to complete the victory, and God miraculously causes the sun to stand still, and Israel defeats the Amorites, and the promised land is theirs. There in Joshua 10, verse 13 and 14, we read this. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Moses said the Lord is a man of war. In Joshua 10, we read the Lord fought for Israel. Habakkuk 3, now back to our passage, verse 13, Habakkuk says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. What is Habakkuk doing? He's doing something that I think is utterly fundamental to the life of every believer. He's recalling God's faithfulness in the past as grounds for faith in the present. He's looking back on how God has worked and acted to deliver His people. And he's recalling this as a means of stilling his own faith. God's past faithfulness becomes grounds for present trust. Consider what Habakkuk was up against. If you just read the book, Habakkuk 1 through 3. I mean, he's dealing with the sinfulness of Judah. 
He's waking up every day. He talks about how evil is processed before him. He's been made to see iniquity. And I, I don't think you should think of that like, like we in our day and age in America, we see a lot of Americans acting wickedly. For Habakkuk, Judah was the Lord's people in some sense. And to see God's covenant people acting in such flagrantly wicked ways, how distressing and disturbing that must have been to him. It, the closest analogy we could probably appreciate is being in a local church and seeing everyone in the church backsliding and living in sin and degradation. He's witnessing the sinfulness of Judah all around him. Then he's alerted to the fact that God is coming to judge Judah, that the people he knows and loves are going to be judged by God, and that God is going to do so by bringing the nation into captivity under Babylon, an aggressively sinful and wicked nation. God is going to use the Chaldeans to judge Judah. How distressing this must have been to Habakkuk. We don't have to speculate. We can see it in Habakkuk 1, 13 through 2, 1. Consider how dim the promises of God must have seemed to Habakkuk as he saw the sinfulness of Judah, the coming judgment of God by way of the Babylonians. Well, how was Habakkuk to persevere? What was there for Habakkuk? How was he to, to live in the midst of such sorrow and such evil? What was there for Habakkuk? There was faith. Habakkuk 2, for the righteous shall live by faith. He was to trust. But on what or on whom was his faith to rest? It was to rest upon God. God who had called him, God who had redeemed him, on God who had always been faithful, and on God who had given to Habakkuk the most convincing proofs that he can be trusted. Habakkuk had only to look back on God's dealings with his people at the Exodus, at the battle with the Amorites in Joshua 10. And he had there everything he needed to know God will be faithful still. He has given me reasons to trust him. In the midst of such evil, such dark providences, Habakkuk is wondering, how can I live? How can I move forward? What can I do? What is there for me? Well, what did Habakkuk have to do? What has he done in this book? Habakkuk had to gather himself. He had to pick himself up off the ground, and he had to ask himself, what do I know to be true about God? This seems terrible to me. I don't want anything to do with what is coming. How am I going to walk through the fire that is before me? He had to rally himself. He had to contemplate God, and he had to think, what do I know to be true about him? This is the way forward for Habakkuk. He recalls God's past faithfulness as the grounds for present trust. Habakkuk knew that though things looked bleak and though the promises looked dim, he knew God could be trusted. And therefore, when things look bleak, when life seems hard, when the promise looks dim, Habakkuk says, I will trust God. I will live by faith. The God who has always been faithful, I will trust Him. Well, my friends, we're not in Habakkuk's situation. We're New Covenant believers. What is there for us? Well, there is the most convincing proof of God's faithfulness that we have at the cross of Calvary. We are confounded by our circumstances. We experience suffering and hardship and trial. We experience things in our lives that are so painful that we would do anything to be rid of them. And we wrestle, we struggle like Habakkuk. Well, how are we going to walk through? How are we going to trust God? How are we going to live by faith? We're going to gather ourselves and we're going to say to ourselves, what do we know to be true about God? What proofs has God given to me that He is good, that He's loving, that He's merciful, that He's not forgotten me, that He will somehow carry me through 
the night. God has acted on our behalf. He has sent His own Son into the world to suffer and to die on the cross for our sins. Do you need any more convincing proof of the love of God? That God is for you. That God will take care of you. God who did not spare His own Son will not abandon you. He will not forget about you. We have every reason to trust God through hardship because of what God has displayed for us at the cross and giving His own Son to die for us for our salvation so that we could be saved. And more than that, He has given us so many rich promises. He has told us that His grace will be sufficient for us. He has told us that He will never leave us or forsake us. He has told us that His strength will be made perfect in our weakness. He has told us that though we walk through the fire, we will not be burned. He has told us that if we come to Him as our great high priest, we will find grace to help in time of need. At our elders' retreat uh, last fall, uh, we tried to evaluate our ministry in a number of different ways, and I asked Pastor Ben and Pastor Lai Chow to evaluate uh, my preaching. What are some ways in which I could improve as a preacher? I always want to be improving. Paul told Timothy to make sure his progress was manifest to all, so I want to do that. And um, one of the things the brothers encouraged me in was to try to, to be more practical and to give more time to application. So I'm going to try to be as practical as I can be at this point. I'm aware that I have a fourth point. We're running out of time. I'm probably not going to get to it this morning. I want to be practical on this point because I think this is the big point of Habakkuk's message. He's reflecting on God's past faithfulness as grounds for present trust. So I want you to imagine two scenarios. You have a, a woman, Christian woman, Married to a man, maybe he's a believer, maybe he's not. And, and this man is just, he's not what he ought to be. Uh, he, he won't lead his wife. He won't initiate in the family. And he, more than that, has given over to certain sins that he won't, he won't give up. Maybe he just gives himself entirely to watching TV, or he's lazy in his work, or he spends all his time out in the garage with his tools or something. He doesn't give the sort of affection to his wife that he ought to give. And, and here's this woman. She's in an embattled marriage, a difficult marriage. It's hard for her. Day after day, she feels like this is always before her. But I have this husband who is not what he ought to be, and I did not think marriage would be like this, and I so wanted something different, and this is so painful for me and so hard for me, and I can't imagine being married to this man for another 20 or 30 or 40 years. He's got to change. Something's got to give. How am I going to make my way through this marriage in a way that honors God? I can't stand this. I can't deal with this. I can't bear this oppressive marriage. I want my circumstances so badly to change. I want him to change so badly. I need a way out. I know I can't divorce him. I know God is not pleased with that. But this is not what I want it to be. Lots of Christian women in that situation. Lots of Christian men. We could reverse the analogy. Find themselves in that situation. A wife who's unspiritual and unloving and How are you supposed to persevere in a situation like that? Maybe it's worse than even what I conveyed. Maybe the marriage is oppressive in some way. How do you persevere with a husband who's unloving, with a wife who's unloving, with a husband who's maybe unconverted, a wife who maybe doesn't know the Lord, and day after day is just misery for you? The righteous to live by faith. My sister, you have promises in God's Word for you. You have convincing displays and proofs 
of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. He hasn't forgotten about you. And more than that, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. 1 Corinthians 10, God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. You can know, sister or brother, if it's the other way around, that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world in part to develop sympathy with you. You don't think he knows what it's like to be lonely and to be abandoned, to be forgotten, to be harmed and to be hurt by people who should have done better? And he says that you can come to him to find grace, to help in time of need. These promises are for you. Faith needs to lay hold of these promises. And it's by faith in the promises of God, the faithfulness of God, that you will persevere. More than that, you have this most convincing proof that the good shepherd loves you so that he laid down his life for you. He will give you all that you need to persevere through an embattled marriage. Another scenario you could imagine, you personally are perhaps afflicted by some sort of chronic health issue, some sort of thorn in the flesh. Maybe you struggle with severe depression, severe anxiety. You so wish it would be different. You wish you could just somehow take a pill and have it all be taken away. You're dealing with some sort of bodily ailment or some sort of affliction. You would do anything to get rid of it. You'd give your right arm to be rid of this affliction. And yet it's still there, this thorn in your flesh day after day after day. And maybe you're a young person. Maybe you're in your 20s or 30s or something like that. And you're thinking, how am I going to persevere through a life of this affliction? The righteous shall live by faith. God will supply your every need. God has been faithful to you in the past, has He not? God has carried you safe thus far. God has provided you with proofs by which you can trust Him. He's given you promises that you can lay hold of, that though you go through the waters, He will be with you. Though you pass through the storms, he will care for you. You can cast all your burdens upon him because he cares for you. God will supply your every need. God will make a way for you. You, my brother, my sister, need to reflect on the ways in which God has been faithful to you in the past. You need to rally yourself and say, okay, what do I know to be true about God? I know that he's good. He's shown me that. I know that he's faithful. He's shown me that. I know that He will care for me, that He hasn't abandoned me, that He hasn't forgotten about me. I know these things to be true. I will trust Him. And I'll walk and I'll persevere by faith. That's the third point. God's past faithfulness, the grounds for present trust. The fourth point is going to be this. God's promise, the grounds for hope. I don't have time to open up this point. The simple idea is that it's not just that Habakkuk looked back on God's past faithfulness. He looked ahead to a coming promise. Habakkuk would have known that God had promised to Abraham that there was coming a seed of Abraham who would bring about deliverance for the nations. He would have known that there was a coming son of David who would reign on his father's throne forever. He could have known that even as Judah sat in Captivity in Babylon, there is coming a seed of David, there's coming a son who will bring about salvation for his people. And he looked ahead to that one. God's promise had not been thwarted. God's promise would stand. And though it seemed so dim and so bleak and so faint to Habakkuk, he would have known the promise will stand. God will bring this promise to fulfillment. And of course, we in our day, we look at the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ the seed of Abraham, the son of David who has come, the Messiah, the Christ, God's Holy One, God's anointed, who has accomplished salvation and deliverance for His people. He has granted us eternal life by faith in His Son. And so we too look ahead 
to a coming day when we will rise again, when we will inherit paradise and eternal life forever with the Lord Jesus. God's promise is the grounds for our hope as well. Brothers and sisters, please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, though we are not facing the same circumstances that Habakkuk faced, we are not unfamiliar, so many of us, with trials, deeply painful things that have taken place in our lives that are presently taking place in our lives. We are not unfamiliar or unacquainted with hardship and sorrow and difficulty. And yet, Lord, time and time again, you have proven yourself faithful. You have always done what is right. There's never been a day when your justice and your goodness and your faithfulness have failed. More than that, there's never been a day when we've been out of your mind. For those of us who are in Christ, there's never been a time when you have sought to work evil for us. But rather, Lord, we know that you're working everything for our good. We pray that faith would rise in each one of our hearts that faith would lay hold of Christ and all your promises that are yes in him. And that by faith, we, your people, we, the righteous, would live. We pray, Father, that we would be lost in the wonder and the awe of having the God of Habakkuk 3 in our corner fighting for us, working for us, delivering us. May you impress us with something of the beauty of what it means, those old words, that if God is for us, who could be against us? For all those, Lord, who are presently not in the circle of your favor, who are hearing my voice now, we pray that ultimately your wrath would not be against them, but that you in mercy would give them the gift of faith, and that even now they would run to you and find safety in the shadow and the shelter of your wings, that they would come to you through Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, that they would put their faith and trust in him, turning from sin and embracing the provision you've made by which sinners can be right with holy God. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.